flashpoints, we continue our coverage of the resistance to the coup in Honduras. We'll feature three reports from the ground on yesterday's violent attack on supporters and ongoing confrontations all over the country today. Also, American Indian Movement leader Bill Means comments on a major victory for AIM and Indian people with the dropping of key charges against John Graham. We'll also have a commentary on the Obama crackdown at the border by Miguel Gavilan Molina, news headlines from Project Censored, and Flashpoints in Espanol will also focus on the ongoing resistance to the coup in Honduras. I'm Dennis Bernstein with Miguel Perez and Miguel Gavilan Molina. All this straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And now we go to these news headlines from our colleagues at Project Censored at Sonoma State University. Hello and welcome to 52 Weeks, Project Censored's ongoing weekly collaboration with Flashpoints Radio. I'm Kate Sims for Project Censored, bringing you valid, independent news stories from the past year that were neglected by corporate media. In May 2008, Greenpeace released a report claiming that clean coal, otherwise known as carbon capture and storage, is a political fiction. Clean coal is a notion promoted by industry officials that a new technology exists that will allow them to capture carbon dioxide from power station smokestacks and then dump it under the ground. The 2008 Greenpeace report maintains that if the coal industry's carbon capture and storage plan were ever implemented, it would be the largest hazardous waste disposal project that humans have ever undertaken, and among the most dangerous as well. The report, entitled False Hope, urges policymakers to stop pumping vast amounts of taxpayer money into the vague promise of carbon capture and storage. These futile investments, say Greenpeace, threaten to starve existing clean renewable energy initiatives of much-needed funds to ensure that dangerous climate change is prevented. The report urges leaders to prioritize investments in sustainable energy solutions, which are more likely to stop the climate crisis. Meanwhile, coal and power companies are exploiting the notion of capture-ready power plants to justify building new coal-fired power stations with no actual guarantee that they will ever be retrofitted to capture CO2. Coal-fired power stations are the largest single source of CO2 emissions and the greatest threat to the climate. It is only because of powerful political pressure that the scientifically shaky technology is still on the political drawing board. An alternative plan put forward by scientists working with Greenpeace shows that greatly improving energy efficiency and relying on renewable energy could cut global greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2050. The report notes that global renewable energy resources are sufficient to meet the world's energy needs six times over. In December 2008, the financial company Goldman Sachs, one of the recipients of government bailout money earlier this year, reported its first quarterly loss since going public over 10 years ago. On the heels of this announcement, Goldman Sachs issued a statement confirming that its tax rate was dropping from 34% to merely 1%. Among other things, the New York-based company cited changes in geographic earnings mix as the reason behind the decrease. 
According to U.S. Representative Lloyd Doggett, the shifting of income to countries with lower taxes is cause for concern. The problem is larger than Goldman Sachs, Doggett said. With the right hand out begging for bailout money, the left is hiding it offshore. This issue was highlighted at the G20 summit meeting in April 2009, where in the wake of the financial collapse, developed nations are promising to crack down on tax havens such as Switzerland and the Cayman Islands, which allowed wealthy individuals and companies to hide more than $7 trillion in 2008. Nearly 10 years have passed since extremist Albanians destroyed homes in Mitrovica, Kosovo. Three refugee camps were created by the U.N. to house about 500 people whose homes were destroyed during the uprising. During the construction, it was warned that the camps were on a toxic waste dump. The U.N. promised to find new housing within 45 days or move the families to safe, clean areas. However, more than nine years later, nothing has been done to move these families away from danger. Two of the camps have been closed, but the families living there were moved just 50 meters away. Lead poisoning has become a big issue for the families. Lead poisoning was implicated in the deaths of 77 people living in these camps and 50 miscarriages. Many more suffer from liver and brain damage, among other maladies, and doctors predict that many of the children born within the camps are expected to die prematurely. In November 2008, the UN still said new houses for these refugees will not be built for a couple of years. This has been Kate Sims reporting for 52 Weeks and Project Censored. We hope you will tune in again next week. I'm Sandra Kess. I'm a freelance journalist and photographer. I'm a contributing member of the DominionPaper.ca, MediaCoop.ca, as well as a correspondent for UpsideDownWorld.org and here in Honduras with WhipInPhotosAndLinea.com. Um, so today was thankfully much calmer than yesterday. Um, marches continued in Tegucigalpa, the capital of Honduras, and around the country. The action was led by some of the resistance leaders once they were released late last night from detention, um, where many people, you know, before they were detained, were very seriously beaten, but um, people who aren't in the hospital are back out on the streets today. And um, similar situation a little bit west, about an hour and a half west of the capital in Comayas. There were over 150 people detained, some beaten, some shot, um, some hiding the mountains. Most of them are now out. Reportedly, there's 11 people in Comayagua who are going to be charged with sedition, which is obviously quite serious charge um, in Honduras. And um, other news today is that there were large actions again further west in the country in the department of Copan, which borders Guatemala, and there's reports coming in of pretty serious depression out there today. So that's probably the um, most serious thing that's going on today. People are being detained and beaten. Um, also, up north in the country, near Tocoa, so northeastern for the corner of the country, pretty close to the coast, there's um, people in the Department of Cologne have been occupying uh, one of the main highways up along the coast in the Céline sector. Since 1 p.m. on Wednesday, there's been a like 24-hour night and day highway occupation of well over 2,000 people on the highway 
and it's right in front of a very symbolic um, community for the National Social Movement in Honduras. Uh, the community is Guadalupe Carne, which was the chosen adopted name um, of a U.S. Jesuit priest who was down here and very actively supporting um, landless communities in that region. He was disappeared um, in the repression of the 1980s by CIA trained death squad in Honduras. And so it's actually the site of the now, you know, very strong community is a former U.S. military base. And so it was occupied years ago by landless um, campesino organizations who now have title to the community of Guadalupe Carne on that former U.S. military base. So there's reports just in the past hour that um, there's a pretty serious military presence sort of building up in that region. They haven't yet gotten right to the highway where the protest is taking place, um, but there's the expectation that probably within the next 24 hours there'll be a really violent eviction um, in that region as well. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with freelance journalist Sandra Cuff, and uh, she has been covering the protests. Uh, she's in Tegucigalpa now, uh, covering the very violent uh, protests yesterday. Now, you reported yesterday, Sandra, about a teacher being shot, apparently by plainclothes police, uh, shot in the head. What do we know about the, that situation? Um, well, the teacher, his full name is Roger Abraham Vallejo Soriano. Um, he was, I believe, 38 years old, if I'm not mistaken. He was a, a middle school teacher and the secretary of a technical institute here in Tegucigalpa. Um, and so, you know, yesterday and today, most teachers, so the teachers' unions are very, very strong here, have been out on the streets. The teachers' unions are always sort of at the forefront of a lot of, um, social protest in Honduras and um, as of earlier today he was still hanging on in the hospital sort of in critical condition and the doctors were reserving um, their prognosis or whatever it's called on whether he's going to make it or not um, but even though you know he has a bullet lodged in his head um, he didn't die so He's still hanging on, as far as I know. I haven't heard otherwise. And there's several other very seriously wounded people, both here in Tegucigalpa and in Comayagua. Um, in Comayagua, some from bullet wounds, and the majority just from really violent, brutal beatings. All right. Uh, we've been speaking with Sandra Cuff. She is a freelance journalist reporting from Tegucigalpa. And uh, just finally, we have about 30 seconds left. Uh, I guess despite the rather violent uh, attacks yesterday, including the shooting of this teacher, uh, the spirit of the people seems to be strong and they're still willing to go out into the street. Is that your sense of the situation? Absolutely. It's sort of the same, you know, even right after the shooting of um, teacher Roger Abraham yesterday, same thing on July 5th with the shooting of young 19-year-old Isi. People, it just enrages people. People are indignant and outraged, and it almost like reaffirms their commitment and dedication to protesting the military coup. All right. Uh, we're going to leave it right there. We thank you for being with us, and we will continue to check with you uh, and watch the situation in Honduras uh, from many angles. Thanks for being with us, Sandra. Great. Thanks so much.
This is Andres Thomas Conferis reporting from Tegucigalpa. The uh, training that is about to take place, sponsored by Nonviolence International, at the invitation of leadership of the resistance to the coup here in Honduras, uh, is a, a, a next step in the int intensification of strategies that the leadership of those who are resisting the de facto regime are looking for. We've invited uh, a leader from Serbia to come here to Honduras and share some of the stories and some of the strategies that took place during uh, during the process of resisting Milosevic. And a movie will be shown called uh, Bringing Down a Dictator. So this training in nonviolent direct action is an increasing level of commitment on the part of those in the resistance to the coup looking toward new creative ideas for how to take on this de facto regime. Yesterday was one of the most violent days since the beginning of the coup on June 28th. Uh, throughout the country, there were concerted, direct, uh, repressive measures taken against the nonviolent blockade of those who have been resisting every single day since the coup. There were massive beatings of those who were doing, engaging in the nonviolent activity. Journalists, both national and international, uh, were, had their cameras removed from them. The uh, beatings resulted in uh, a, 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 a teacher who is now in a coma and in very critical condition, near death, shot in the head. Uh, the independent presidential candidate, his name is Carlos H. Reyes, Carlos H. Reyes, is a president, one of five presidential candidates, and he has been at the leadership against the coup here in Honduras. This man is in his 70s, and he was beaten and uh, had two fractures, one in his wrist, and he's also had injuries to his head. So the uh, incredible violence on the part of both the military and the police yesterday throughout the country, not just here in Tegucigalpa, but in, in smaller villages like Siguatepeque and Choloma. And these, it is very clear that while um, Ambassador Hugo Lawrence was meeting with President Melcelaya in uh, Managua, Nicaragua, while these conversations were going on in a comfortable setting, some of the most horrific violence and repression was taking place here in Honduras on Thursday, uh, Ju July the 30th. So the, the, this makes this training that will take place here in the capital all the more important. Uh, the highest level of leadership of the resistance, including President Salai himself and the, the First Lady uh, have advocated intensifying nonviolent efforts, and this is exactly what we're moving towards here in Honduras. And uh, so you do, uh, as others, see the resistance continuing in the face of uh, such a violent crackdown, and I understand uh, that there's more encounters expected, uh, I guess, out by the coast, uh, where people are also holding a major highway no question that today even though the repression yesterday was so intense 
Today, uh, blockades have continued, especially in the northern part of the country. Uh, I was at the Congress today here in Tegucigalpa. Uh, there was not a severe repression. Uh, there was not tear gas as was used yesterday throughout the country. Um, but today, in, in, in the northern part of the country, the repression did continue. Um, so we're being very selective and, uh, around uh, detentions and repressive measures. So they do detain uh, resistors. They, help, they hold them either overnight or for a few hours, and then they do release them. But the beatings stay with those who are resisting for a long time, and many, many have been hospitalized as a result of the intensity of the repression. All right, Andres, I want to thank you very much uh, for all your good work, your contributions as well to Democracy Now!, uh, where uh, Manuel Zelaya gave an excellent uh, interview, and uh, that was, I guess, yesterday morning. People can check that out. We're going to stay in touch with you and see how this uh, continuing resistance unfolds. Dennis, thanks so much, and warm greetings from here in Tegucigalpa, and we'll be in touch next week. All right, be careful. This is Tim Russo for Free Speech Radio News in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, and today, Friday, we've been following a, a very peaceful demonstration, but an angry demonstration that's uh, a march from the Pedagogical University in the center of Tegucigalpa to the congressional buildings, where about five, 6,000 people came together uh, to denounce yesterday's violence, which was a very brutal attack against demonstrators that were setting up roadblocks once again to try and paralyze the economy internally here in Honduras. It's been suffering losses of uh, millions of lempiras, uh, millions of dollars every day for the last 34 days, uh, virtually paralyzing much of the local economy and definitely the export economy here in Honduras as well, which has been upsetting quite a bit. Uh, the small and uh, large uh, business sectors inside the country, which have putting much more pressure on the government to try to keep demonstrations from blocking the flow of commerce throughout the country, especially from San Pedro Sula to Tegucigalpa, the capital, and to the port town of Cortez. Uh, today's march was a, a, a very nice display of the movement's discipline, how disciplined, how peaceful they've been able to be, how they've been able to sort of uh, maintain calm even in difficult situations. Uh, they were repudiating the killing of um, Roger Vallejos yesterday, and uh, this was something that's really affected the teachers' movement in particular because he was the secretary of one of the larger uh, teachers' unions in Tegucigalpa. So <clears throat> this was something that had many more teachers out in the streets today. Again, we saw about 5,000 people in the streets, but in a very calm fashion. Uh, there was no disturbances. There was no police repression today. Uh, people called for a large demonstration tomorrow, Saturday, in the city center in front of the cathedral where it will be a political and artistic display of the rejection of the popular movement of the ordinary people in Honduras to the uh, golpe de estado, to the group coup d'etat. So tomorrow we're expecting a, a fair amount of, of music and a more uh, 
festive attitude towards the uh, creator. At the same time, a bit of information that we're, we're trying to break this story right now as we speak. We got a call just moments ago uh, that it looks as if uh, Roberto Michelletti, the facto president, has uh, placed an order to revoke the diplomatic visas of the United States ambassador and uh, members of the U.S. Embassy. This is a direct response, if it's confirmed, to uh, U.S. Ambassador Hugo Lorenz meeting with Manuel Zelaya, Alfred President Manuel Zelaya, yesterday in Managua, Nicaragua, which there have already been statements by Micheletti and uh, <clears throat> the Vice President of the Congress saying that they were very upset this was a direct provocation and this was uh, the beginning of foreign intervention into Honduras. And that's just a comment about the two men meeting yesterday in Managua to talk about uh, possible solutions to the conflict here in Honduras. We're trying to confirm this information now. We've got a couple of people on the phone. But it's very, very important. And it shows sort of the attitude of the uh, de facto Honduran regime that they seem not to be afraid of any sort of external pressure. Uh, it's something that comes as a huge surprise uh, because this is going to be uh, a, a measure that is going to upset probably very much the U.S. government, the U.S. State Department, who's already also uh, pulled four uh, diplomatic visas of the de facto regime in the United States earlier this week. We also saw... Uh, so two days ago, that Oscar Arias, president of Costa Rica and the leader of the mediating team in San Jose, Costa Rica, inaugurated the, the Tuxla summit in uh, Costa Rica uh, with a speech about Honduras in a very stern fashion, uh, urging Honduras to uh, take a positive step towards accepting the, the proposals that he had made, including the restitution of Manuel Zelaya in the presidency, which, again, uh, Micheletti and uh, the de facto government have said is an absolute impossibility. Was there any comment uh, from the United States uh, regarding the intensification of the violence, the the attack on the teacher, uh, the beating up of journalists, the taking of cameras? Was there any reaction uh, coming from the U.S.? Was there any attempt uh, uh, from the embassy uh, uh, in uh, Tegucigalpa to speak out against the violence? No, as far as I know, we didn't hear of any information uh, or declarations by the U.S. Embassy uh, about the, the the brutality of the repression yesterday, nor about the brutality directed towards uh, independent journalists and journalists from Telesur yesterday as well. What there was was a, a denouncement from the uh, Sociedad Internacional de Periodistas, the International Society of, of Journalists, that denounced the de facto regime uh, and its repression of uh, independent and uh, national media outlets. And finally, the opposition uh, continues to resist. Uh, you say that there's going to be a peaceful rally, perhaps a celebration of art and culture tomorrow in Tegucigalpa. Is there a real concern, given the violence and the various uh, standoffs that are taking place uh, around the country, that uh, it won't allow 
uh, it won't be allowed to happen. It won't be a uh, simply a peaceful uh, protest because uh, the police won't let it happen. What's the concern there? Well, we suspect for tomorrow, uh, as far as the demonstration in Central Park, is really that, that there won't be much of a standoff there as far as the police are concerned. Reason being is that it's a, it's a public space. It doesn't involve necessarily taking any uh, public streets or public roadways. It doesn't involve the blockading of any uh, of any major transport transportation routes. So we figure that tomorrow should really be a festive day for the movement. It's sort of a day that the leaders within the movement and, and people from the bases in the movement are saying, let's relax, let's rest a little bit, let's let's celebrate our strength, let's celebrate our resistance, but let's do it in a different way that's not going to put anyone in any sort of jeopardy as well. Uh, let's continue to make sure that we're not provoking and that if there is some sort of rep- repression, then we know exactly who's responsible for that repression, that those are from orders from above. Because what we saw yesterday was that despite their, these previous rumors that were published in uh, papers like the New York Times about uh, Micheletti's willingness to actually accept the San Jose uh, agreement, uh, that at the same time the police and the military were receiving uh, or giving orders to not permit any further blockade of public routes, to not permit any further demonstrations that blockade any streets or highways. So we think that this is more directed towards making sure that commerce can flow because the large uh, businessmen and the large companies are putting a lot of pressure also on the, the military and the government to make sure that their commerce flows. So we don't expect really tomorrow, Saturday, any sort of problems with the, uh, the festive demonstration that's being planned. But the way things have gone, it's really hard to know how things will play out until we're there, until we're covering the story, until we see what happens, and until the day ends. Any word on the street, uh, any connections, any source of, sources of yours uh, suggesting that uh, Manuel Zelaya will do as he has threatened to do, return over the weekend? No, as of uh, as of today, we haven't heard any new news or any new rumors of Zelaya's um, possible return over the weekend. Again, last week we knew he was in uh, Managua in the meetings with uh, U.S. Ambassador yesterday Hugo Lorenz, and from there uh, we're trying to confirm if he's returned to the Ocotal region, where there's still at least 1,500 people that trek hours and hours and days through the mountains in order to reach that area, to speak to him, to greet him, to accompany him. Those people have been organizing in the small groups of about 20 people to uh, do political analysis of the situation, to discuss what measures they can take, to discuss how they're going to get back into the country without being detained, uh, and discuss how they're going to take a, a new level of resistance back to their different departments because they traveled from all different departments throughout the country. And we've also seen today um, more repression, not here in Tegucigalpa, but in uh, Copan, which is near the Guatemalan border and the famous ruins of Copan, where 42 people were detained in a very, very violent breakup of uh, roadblocks that they had set up as of yesterday. We also saw, again, a large movement in Comayagua, which was seriously repressed yesterday as well, people being chased into the mountainside, and they took back to the streets again today and blocked the highways there. That's on this major route between Tegucigalpa and San Pedro. And we also saw today 
that in Colón, which uh, is on the northern coast near Trujillo, the largest city, the movement uh, of the campesinos from Via One uh, had put up a 24-hour roadblock, and they were issued today by the police a warning that there was 1,500 men from the community that had arrest warrants for them. So we're waiting for more information on the situation as it develops in some of these other areas outside of the capital and trying to follow that as much as possible because these are some areas that really haven't had much media attention, really haven't had much presence from either international, national press, or even human rights observers that have been able to get out to some of these places. So we're trying to keep an eye on some of these areas. And if things do calm down a bit here in Tegucigalpa, then we'll be trekking out to some of these other uh, towns and cities where there's been a huge amount of resistance, but not very much information getting about about what's happening there and how people outside of the capital, capital and El Paraiso are organizing and resisting this cruetà. Uh, for Flashpoint, this is Tim Russo, correspondent for Free Speech Radio News in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. In Berkeley, I'm Dennis Bernstein. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Just a few minutes ago, a judge in South Dakota dismissed the indictment against a Canadian man in the decades-old slang of anime, Aquash, a fellow Canadian original activist. John Graham was charged with the shooting death of Aquash on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota in 1975. As I said uh, just minutes ago, the judge has dismissed the key charge. Joining us to talk about the significance of this, uh, remind us uh, what the case is about, is Bill Means. He's one of the founders of the American Indian Movement, uh, very familiar with the atmosphere in 1975 and the players here and he is with the International Treaty Council as well. Bill, uh, I guess you take this as very good news. Uh, certainly is. Uh, I believe that John has been persecuted long enough. However, due to the legal circumstances, which are very unusual by the way because the legal precedence of this case goes clear back into the you might say 19th century regarding uh, what's called a case known as ex parte Crow Dog involving the two chiefs in which Crow Dog shot a chief by the name of Spotted Tail on the Rosebud Reservation. He was hauled to federal court in Deadwood, South Dakota, and the case had to be dismissed because of treaty rights and the United States not having jurisdiction. Subsequent to that case, the United States government passed a law called the Major Crimes Act, which included uh, crimes committed on Indian reservations and federal lands throughout the United States. However, in the section under the Indian law, it says that persons who are members of a federally recognized tribe can be tried on a federal in a federal court if the crime was committed on an Indian reservation. However, if you recall, both Anime Aquash, which this case has to do with her tragic death, John Graham being accused of being one of the perpetrators, it just so happens that John Graham and Anime are both Canadian citizens. They are not members of a federally recognized tribe of the United States. They are Indian 
people recognized in the country of Canada. So the law made no provision for foreign nationals committing a crime on the reservation. Therefore, historically, the courts have said when a crime is committed between a non-Indian and another non-Indian, which in this case, even though they are Indian, they're considered non-Indians by the law, then the case will be moved to state court, which means the state of South Dakota can still choose to prosecute John Graham. However, there's still a lot of legal issues to be sorted out because one cannot say that they are white necessarily because they are both recognized Canadian Indians. So where is the precedent for taking Canadian Indians off a reservation, moving them to a state court, uh, which when they're not even United States citizens? So how does a state court try non-citizens? So it's a very, very interesting legal case in which hopefully John Graham will be allowed to go back to Canada because the United States basically has no legal provisions for this particular case that happened on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota in 1975, I believe. Now, to be clear, what... Uh, under what auspices, uh, what determined uh, Federal Judge Lawrence uh, Pearsall's decision today to dismiss this key charge? Well, I think it was the issue of uh, jurisdiction. I mean, there was a very clear federal law, like I said, that governs Indian reservation major crimes. And because they are not U.S. citizens, they are not members of a federally recognized tribe, they cannot be tried in a federal court. So the legal complications are very distinct in this area because of the fact that it's basically unprecedented. Right. I I got it. Now, uh, Bill Means, what about... uh the real politics here. Um, what do we know in terms of uh, John Graham's guilt? Uh, it's rather questionable. The evidence has always been questionable, and the logic and the reasoning behind this has been questionable. Could you talk about that? Well, of course, you know, you're looking at a case that goes back 34 years. So you're trying to ask witnesses uh, about a case in which many of them have no idea All they're going on, basically, they being the United States government, what their case is based on is a few, in quotes, Indian journalists and a few white journalists who investigated the case uh, under the auspices of he said, she said evidence. There's no weapon, for example. There's no eyewitness testimony. It's all totally hearsay and maybe third and fourth person hearsay. So the evidence, the reason why they were never tried originally, because there's no evidence. But we have a young prosecutor who's a Republican appointee who has decided to make a political, should we say, play to build his political future on the backs of persecuting the American Indian movement, which is his real issue is to hold up the American Indian movement as these violent, 
outside agitators who came to the Pine Ridge Reservation and caused trouble in the peaceful town of Wounded Knee. Well, if we go back to the history of Wounded Knee, of course, it was the site of a major massacre of Indian people in 1890. Over 300 men, women, and children were buried there in a mass grave which still exists today. So there has always been a major conflict between Lakota people and the United States government because of their desire for a massive amounts of land and resources. In particular, in the Black Hills, the gold that was discovered in and around 1860, which resulted in the largest gold mine in the history of the United States, known as the Homestake Mine, which, by the way, is the foundation of the Hearst Corporation of the William Randolph Hearst notoriety in your state of California. So a lot of this goes back to corporate greed. It goes back to a failed government uh, Lakota Nation policy. It goes back to treaty violations. It goes back to the exploitation of natural resources by multinational corporations. And uh, these are the real issues is what is it that makes this case so significant is the fact that a young prosecutor can make a big future politically off the backs of Indian people to be recognized in a very well-known racist state of South Dakota. He recognized himself and becomes notable because, in quotes, as it was said in the last century, He's an Indian fighter. He's trying to take care of the American Indian movement once and for all, the violent American Indian movement. And so rather than look at the positive things that AIM has done, he's trying to build a career on the backs of Anime Aqua's tragic death and the American Indian movement. We're speaking with Bill Means. He's one of the founders of the American Indian movement, very familiar with the history of Wounded Knee and uh, aware and present in 1975, the time around which we're referring in terms of uh, this case. And we're just uh, telling you that uh, minutes ago, the federal judge threw out a key uh, federal charge against John Graham, uh, but the state, uh, as you hear Bill Means saying, might still uh, go after uh, John Graham. This is unprecedented. Let me uh, transition this way to Leonard Peltier. Last we spoke, Bill, was Tuesday. Uh, that was uh, the day that a hearing was held for Leonard Peltier, uh, who has spent uh, over 33 years in jail as a political prisoner. He had a uh, parole hearing. Uh, we're waiting. It could be anywhere from 72 hours to three weeks that we find out. Is there... Uh, these are... Uh, situations that occurred around the same time under the same atmosphere uh is there uh any hope from this decision by this judge is there any connection between these two uh shall we say government crimes uh well i think the the biggest thing that uh, one has to recognize is the fact that there is no evidence against john graham and in particular, Leonard Paltier, if you look back at the evidence which he was convicted, was 
tampered with by the United States government. Some of the evidence was withheld. Uh, that's been proven in court. Uh, the court has even said that they don't know who killed the agents, so they changed the charge to aiding and abetting. So there's all a history of using basically bias and prejudice of non-Indian juries to convict AIM people, to convict those who stand up against the racist policies of the United States government, those who stand up for social change in the Indian reservation communities, especially Pine Ridge, which is the poorest county in the United States. So in reality, what we have is modern-day Indian fighters who basically build cases on little or no evidence but depend on the racial prejudice and the stereotype images created by Hollywood and sports mascots and these type of issues so that people do not make a decision on the facts of the case but basically make decision out of bias and prejudice in a very, very racially should we say, a racially charged area in which there are basically no African Americans. There's probably very few Hispanic people, very few minorities other than American Indians and the white community in the state of South Dakota, one of the least populated states in America. So you have this history of bad relations socially and even educationally, in which edit, uh, Indian people are edited out of the public school curriculum so that non-Indians never really learn about the contributions or the true history of Indian people or treaty rights or the opportunity to learn a language or the culture of Indian people. So you build these walls of prejudice and bias, and so these prosecutors, basically, in order to say... As the FBI used to say, we always get our man. Uh, they don't need evidence. And it's kind of a place where legal jurisprudence has been thrown out the window. And you use a tactic such as shopping for certain judges. You use tactics of withholding evidence, of coercing witnesses. And uh, that's been the legacy of Indian white relations, especially in the courts. If you look at the prisons in South Dakota, we make up only maybe one half or one percent of the state, but maybe as much as 12 to 15 percent of the population in the prisons. So these are some of the issues that have historically plagued the Indian communities and which continue to be uh, should we say the effects of Leonard Peltier, and that's why he's become a symbol of the injustice towards American Indians by the United States government. And just finally, and so what is at stake? What does it mean to the Indian community, to you, that Leonard Peltier, after all these years of persecution, uh, including a recent beating behind bars, what what is at stake? What does this mean now? Why should he be free finally uh, with his body? His mind has always been free, but uh, what's the what does it mean now to let his body go? Well, I think 
you know, even out of the most remote feelings of reconciliation, I think there's a time to say enough is enough. They always say that uh, many times we need to heal. We need to look at how to rebuild the relation between non-Indians and Indians. But more importantly, I think Leonard Peltier is a symbol of the injustice perpetrated on Native Americans by the United States government. So we have a new president. We have a new Congress coming up. You know, it's time to start looking at the real facts. It's time to start rebuilding the relation between American Indians, United States government, and the people of America. All right, Bill Means, uh, one of the founders of the American Indian Movement, also uh, on the board of the uh, International Treaty Council, fighting for indigenous rights uh, in this hemisphere and around the world. Uh, as always, it is a pleasure and an honor uh, to be with you, uh, Bill Means. Dennis, thanks to you and all the uh, listening audience of this very important program. My name is Miguel Gavilan Molina, and I'm here uh, getting ready with my socio, Miguel Perez, and we're asking you to turn off your English-only thinking caps and put on your Espanol. Coming up next here is uh, the Flashpoints in Spanish, Las Noticias en Español, con Radio Flash, y nuestro compañero, mi socio, Miguel Perez, con las noticias de la región, y entrevistas en Honduras. Bienvenido, compañero. Muy buenas tardes, Ecleola Miguel. Miguel Pérez, y aquí estamos en NotiFlash con las noticias de la semana. Eduardo Medina Mora recibe al zar antidrogas estadounidense Gil Kerlosque. El zar antidrogas del gobierno de Barack Obama, Gil Kerlosque, aseguró ayer en nuestro país, en México, que como paso previo a que se puedan liberar los recursos de la denominada Iniciativa Mérida de Apoyo a México, la secretaria de Estado estadounidense Hillary Clinton realiza un análisis sobre la situación de los derechos humanos en el país con el propósito de determinar si se les certifica en esa materia. Sobre su pregunta respecto de la certificación para el gobierno de México en relación con los asuntos de derechos humanos, es la secretaria de Estado Hillary Clinton quien hará esa certificación, dijo Gil. Nosotros ciertamente analizaremos y proporcionaremos información sobre todo de las violaciones de derechos humanos, porque esto es algo que se toma muy en serio en México y las prácticas de los militares y de la policía también se toman de manera muy seria. Destacó el funcionario estadounidense durante una conferencia de prensa en la que también participó el Procurador General de la República, Eduardo Medina Mora. Ecuador. Correa nunca autorizó a nadie nexos con la FARC, según el Ministro del Interior. Quito, Ecuador. El gobierno ecuatoriano no protegerá a los exfuncionarios que están bajo sospecha por sus presuntos nexos con las Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia porque nunca fueron autorizados por el presidente Rafael Correa a establecer contactos con esa guerrilla, señaló el ministro del Interior de Ecuador, Gustavo Halk. No se va a proteger a nadie y tampoco se va a perseguir a nadie, afirmó Halk. 
eh, al canal Tele Amazonas al referirse al caso de un ministro y un ex secretario de seguridad mencionados en un supuesto manuscrito de la FARC, revelado por Quito. Matan a 14 personas en Chihuahua, 6 en un bar y a un niño en una balacera. En un ataque contra una familia, tres menores más resultaron lesionados. Ciudad Juárez, Chihuahua. La violencia ha dejado 14 muertos ante la noche del jueves y este viernes incluido un sextuple homicidio en un bar de la ciudad de Juárez, epicentro de una guerra entre dos carteles de la droga. En la madrugada del viernes, un, un comando integrado por hombres uniformados de negro y con capuchas dispararon contra ocho personas que se encontraban en un bar de Ciudad Juárez de los cuales cuatro hombres y una empleada murieron en el acto, mientras otra mujer falleció en el hospital, informó personal de la Secretaría de Seguridad Pública. En el interior de otro bar, en una zona situada en la turística ciudad de Juárez, limítrofe con el paso Estados Unidos, fueron asesinados dos hombres cuando pretendían abordar una camioneta con plaja, placas de Texas, indicó la institución. México. Unas 100 personas se manifestaron el lunes de la Procuraduría General de, la, de Justicia de Puebla para exigir la presentación del activista social Fermín Mariano Matías, cuyo cadáver fue identificado ayer. Familiares del activista Fermín Mariano Matías, quien era asesor de diferentes organizaciones sociales de Puebla y estudiante de posgrado del Instituto de Geofísica de la Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, dieron a conocer este martes que identificaron su cadáver, el cual está enterrado en una fosa común en el municipio de San Juan de Totolac, Tlaxcala. Manuel Mariano Matías detalló que el cadáver de su armado, quien al parecer tenía relación con el Ejército Popular Revolucionario, fue encontrado con cuatro balazos el 26 de junio en el paraje La Macabrona, en la comunidad de los Reyes de Quiahuastitlán, en San Juan Totolac. Y por último estamos hablando de Honduras. Tegucigalpa, 30 de junio, el gobierno de facto hondureño reprimió duramente a la resistencia junto justo cuando el presidente José Manuel Zelaya Morales se reunía en Managua con una delegación del Departamento de Estado de Estados Unidos encabezado por el embajador en esta capital, Hugo Llorens, y hora después que el golpista Micheletti manifestara su disposición a respaldar el diálogo en Costa Rica. Y así terminamos muy rápidamente con estas noticias. Estamos en comunicación con Honduras, con la compañera Mercedes que trabaja para Radio Progreso, para Radio Progreso. Muy buenas tardes, Mercedes. ¿Te encuentras ahí? Hola, buenas tardes. ¿Qué tal? Muy bien. Hoy, Mercedes, hemos estado eh, monitoreando la radio. Ustedes este, han estado transmitiendo desde el momento preciso del golpe hasta el día de hoy, cubriendo el sentir del pueblo hondureño eh, con sus líneas abiertas. La verdad que nos ha llamado muchísimo, poderosísimamente la atención el trabajo que ustedes están haciendo. Eh, estábamos leyendo recién las noticias y el día de ayer eh, ocurrieron muchos hechos bastante graves en Honduras. ¿Tendrías información de qué es lo que pasó en, en, el, en casi todo el país? Eh, 
Pues lo que pasó ayer fue que la gente, la resistencia pacífica, el movimiento social de Honduras, se manifestó en las calles y la forma que tuvo de hacerlo fue tomando las carreteras, las vías de acceso a la capital, que fue el punto donde más conflicto hubo con las fuerzas de seguridad. En la mañana de ayer, pues esa toma de carretera, el impedir que circulasen vehículos hacia la capital y de la capital hacia afuera, la gente que estaba bloqueando el acceso fue desalojada violentamente por las fuerzas de seguridad. De hecho, hubo un enfrentamiento fuerte, hubo un muerto por herida de bala, decenas de detenidos, entre los que se encontraban dirigentes sindicales, y la metropolitana, la metropolitana de Tegucigalpa, se vio invadida por esos detenidos que eran llevados allí. Pocas horas después fueron puestos en libertad, pero se vivió un momento de fuerte tensión en la capital por ese encontronazo, por esa eh, manera en que las fuerzas de seguridad, con gases lacrimógenos, con en disparos, eh, dispersaron a la población que estaba concentrada en los accesos. Entendemos que también hubo una persona herida de gravedad. Murió, por, lamentablemente esa persona que era, pertenecía al magisterio, era un maestro, eh, fue ingresado en, en el hospital, pero falleció a las pocas horas. Eh, en estos momentos, ¿cómo podrían caracterizar ustedes las fuerzas que se están moviendo en la resistencia? Es decir, ¿es la gente así autoconvocadamente o hay mmm, empieza a verse un nivel de organización superior. Y esto es una pregunta que mucha gente se hace afuera de Honduras. Es, ¿Esto qué es? ¿Es la espontaneidad de las masas o realmente hay un nivel de organización social mucho más fuerte de lo que se ve? Yo creo que en la movilización social se ha ido de menos a más. En los primeros días del golpe, pues no digo que fuera espontáneamente porque siempre hubo una convocatoria por parte de las organizaciones, tanto sindicales, eh, campesinas, organizaciones sociales, pero lo que ahora sí que hay es una conciencia de que hay que movilizarse, hay que estar en la calle, porque llevamos un mes de golpe de Estado y no se ve una salida. Tras los acuerdos de San José, que no se llegó eh, paradójicamente a ningún acuerdo, se rompió el diálogo, aunque ahora de nuevo hay una llamada a que se sienten ambas partes para negociar. A raíz de los acontecimientos de San José, la población tiene cada vez más conciencia de que la solución y la movilización y el insistir tiene que venir desde dentro del país. De hecho, la semana pasada ya se convocaron 48 horas de paro nacional, los jueves y el viernes, y esta semana volvió a suceder lo mismo. Jueves y viernes hubo un paro nacional. Ayer la fuerza y la noticia estaban en Tegucigalpa, hoy por desgracia se trasladó al occidente del país, en la zona de Santa Rosa de Copán, quizás en Estados Unidos, en California sean conocidas por las ruinas de Copán. Uh -huh, uh -huh. De esa zona hoy los desalojos fueron muy violentos, hubo también heridos, hubo detenidos. La gente quiere demostrar en la calle que no está conforme con el golpe de Estado y que quiere el retorno del proceso constitucional. Un proceso constitucional que pasa por el regreso del presidente Manuel Zelaya al país. Mercedes, dos preguntas. Este, se nos va acabando el tiempo. Eh, Estamos a mmm, prácticamente comienzos, mañana comienza el, el mes de agosto. ¿Con qué dinero cuenta el gobierno de Honduras para pagar los salarios del personal que trabaja para el gobierno? 
Pues eso también es un gran misterio. De hecho, una de las eh, acusaciones que había contra Manuel Zelaya es que este año habían presentado todavía los presupuestos. Que se estaba trabajando con los presupuestos del año anterior y, bueno, las cuentas siempre es una asignatura pendiente dentro de la información en Honduras. Los presupuestos de este año ya fueron aprobados, pero las cuestiones económicas, tanto por un lado como por otro, siempre son una gran incógnita. El gobierno, de facto, pues cuenta, desde luego, con el apoyo de grandes empresarios del país. De hecho, el, el golpe de Estado, todo este proceso no se hubiese llevado a cabo si no hubiese habido ese fuerte apoyo económico. Eh, se supone que el dinero está saliendo pues, de esas grandes empresas y de esas ayudas que están sosteniendo al gobierno. Mercedes, ustedes, bueno, no ustedes como radio, pero en las entrevistas que han hecho, en los análisis que han hecho, ¿han detectado presencia de gente de otros países asesorando al gobierno? Pues eh, lo que es nosotros, o desde mi punto de vista, no. Eh, no sé a qué países se pueden estar refiriendo. Que, a Inglaterra, qué Israel, Estados Unidos. No, no. Eh, bueno, siempre ha habido, siempre se ha dicho y ha salido en los medios de comunicación que Estados Unidos ha mantenido una actitud un tanto, eh, pues, no muy clara, ¿no? Pues en un principio rechazó el golpe, pero luego no había claridad en ese rechazo. Desde luego los intereses de Estados Unidos, pues, están claros también en el país. Hay una base militar, Palmerola, pero desde luego ha mantenido una postura de rechazo total a cómo se ha llevado este cambio de gobierno. De hecho, nunca ha admitido, como ha dicho el presidente Roberto Becheletti, que haya sido una sesión presidencial. Estados Unidos siempre se ha marcado y ha dicho que es un golpe de Estado. Por lo demás, no, no hemos tenido, no hemos castado, yo no he castado presencia de, de otros países. Me refería a, a, a personal como de esos asesores militares, ese tipo de gente, ¿no? ¿no? Mercedes, muchísimas gracias por tu entrevista. Eh, felicitamos y saludamos a los compañeros de Radio Progreso por el, el enorme trabajo que ha hecho. Nosotros entendemos lo que es trabajar en condiciones eh, bueno, bastante, con mucha presión. Mercedes, muchísimas gracias, estamos en contacto y seguramente le estamos dando seguimiento a todo lo que ocurre en Honduras. Muchas gracias a vosotros y pues aquí estamos para cuando necesitéis un nuevo contacto. Muchas gracias. Muchísimas gracias Miguel por esa entrevista y por el reportaje de la región. Y ese fue el segmento de hoy día viernes de Radio Flash. And now we're back here. Uh, this wraps it up for another edition of Flashpoints, which airs every weekday and is produced by Dennis Bernstein and Nora Barrows Friedman. Our contributor producer is Robert Knight and our technical director is Eric Klein. On Fridays, our co-host and roving producer, Miguel Gavilán Molina, yours truly, and our host for Flashpoints in Español, Miguel Perez. Many thanks to you for listening. And now we turn it back to Eric. Soy Julieta Cusmín, aquí con la Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, bringing you noticias en español and in English. Música, poesía. Soy Nina Serrano, la Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, every Tuesday, 7 to 8. My name is Oscar Mania, la Raza Chronicles, here at KPSA 94.1 FM. Yo soy Vanessa Bohm. 
aquí con la raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la raza. Every Tuesday, 7 to 8 p.m. Bringing you noticias de la raza community. Yo soy Nicté, Crónicas de la raza. Todos los martes de 7 a 8 p.m. This is Maya, aquí con la raza Crónicas. Every Tuesday from 7 to 8 p.m. Worldwide at kpfa.org. And in the Bay at 94.1. Hello, receptive ears everywhere. This is an invitation to join your Full Circle crew Friday, July 31st at 7 p.m. as we hear from the youth of Out Loud. Out Loud is a youth-driven media project that lets LGBT young people represent for themselves using radio documentaries, audio art, and web radio to advance social justice. So that's Friday, July 31st at 7 p.m. here on Full Circle. Ever wonder what your financial support? This is 94.1 KPFA Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, and 88.1 KFCF in Fresno. Online at kpfa.org. The time is 6 p.m. Up next, the KPFA Evening News. Stay tuned. Hey, Juan, that's the phone, boy, I am on the one, but I'll be